all comes down to this. The one thing. Well, there it is. That is the one thing. Um, by the way, happy summer. Sort of. Still raining. I don't know. I don't understand. Hey, uh, if, if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. I'm going to give you up front what the one thing is. The one thing that we've been talking about is unity, and it's unity in Jesus Christ. And don't worry, like we're walking through this thing all summer long, so there will be a lot of opportunities to really dig in and figure out what this is all about. Because it sounds really nice, but it can actually be um, a little bit challenging. For example, um, when we start talking about unity, I think there's really two groups of people. The first group is like, yeah, let's unify, let's come together, one page, woo, this is good and healthy. And then there are what I like to call the yeah buts and what abouts. These people, do you know these people? They tend to use phrases like, yeah, but, and what about this? But they also say things like, well, technically. Do you know these people? They live in the technically. So what we're going to do is we have to figure out how to navigate because we got the, yeah, no questions asked, unity. And they have the, yeah, what? What do we do with this? Well, technically, did you know that there's this one part with this one thing and that one thing says, and it gets unique and blah, 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 blah. So already there's a little bit of um, discrepancy. And let's just play this out and have a little bit of fun with it. Over the weekend, I went and saw Top Gun and I loved it to the point to the point where this morning I was standing in front of the mirror with a razor in my hand about to carve a mustache. Yeah! Thank you for not doing that. And I stood there for quite some time. We're unified in the fact that no one cares about Top Gun right now. They're all like pro mustache or no, no mustache. Like that's the focus. So, um... Maybe next week. We'll see what happens. I don't know. But so, okay, if, I, I loved it because it was, um, it was all things action with very minimal um, love story. Don't, no spoiler alerts, but like the love story is, is just minimal, which I think is great because who needs it? Like fly the planes, shoot things, blow stuff up. You know what I mean? Some of you are like, hey, I'm unified. I like movies, but I'm telling you, if there's no love story, I'm out. Because ultimately, life is all about love, and didn't Jesus say to love, right? So you kind of get divided. And listen, if movies isn't your thing, then maybe music is your thing, okay? Different genres, different decades of music, we all have different preferences, but I think most of us are unified on the fact that we like music. Now, technically, yeah, but what about spoken word? It's just spoken word. There's no instruments behind it or no computer sounds, just spoken word. Does that count as music? I don't know. We have to figure that out. You know, can you get it on Spotify? Probably. Yes, you can. Is it music? I don't know. Because Spotify also has podcasts. There's music on podcasts. What do we do? What's a Christian to do? I, I don't even know. Maybe we should just stop trying. You know what I mean? And so, listen, we're talking about music. We're talking about movies. Oh, here's a fun one. Coffee. Coffee. On the count of three, this will be fun. Shout out the best, hands down, no questions asked, the best type of coffee beverage. Your favorite, it's probably your favorite. It should be. If it's the best, it should be your favorite. But what is like the best coffee to drink? Okay, your favorite coffee order, the best coffee to drink when you go up and you order something. Okay, I'm going to count you down. Here we go. Three, two, one. Yeah. Guy in the back is like a grande, upside down zebra, chocolate mocha, latte, two pumps raspberry, in a venti cup, no whip. I'm like, what? 
<laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Don't knock it till you try it, you know? I don't know. I don't know. It gets complicated. Can we at least agree that caffeine is, is um, a gift from God? <laughs> are we unified in that? Some of you are like, I don't drink coffee. I'm tea. You know, like, okay, well, that's good. You know, glad you're here. You're like, it's caffeine-free. I just drink it to calm me before I go to bed. In that case, get out. <laughs> you, you can't be here. We're not going to be unified in that. And... Okay, so I'm messing with you, but ultimately, we're asking ourselves this really important question, and we're really asking, like, how unified do I really have to be in order to be truly unified? Do you know what I mean? We're going to be unified in Jesus, and that sounds great because we're at church, and so that sounds like a church thing to say, but, like, how unified in Jesus do I have to be so that we are still unified in Jesus? Is there, is there a spectrum? Is there a scale? Is uh, black and white? It's all or nothing? Like, what does this look like? And I'm telling you, it gets super complicated because there are um, a plenty of denominations yeah. of churches that believe in Jesus Christ. So we're all unified, these churches that we believe in Jesus Christ, but um, we start to get less unified, or maybe we have just preferences or um, opinions, or we interpret something a little bit different. So, so we branch off when you have this denomination that believes these things, and this denomination that believes those things. Are we still unified in Jesus, even though we're different? I, and then, by the way, to screw the whole thing up, you have non-denominational, non-denominational churches right in the middle. You've got like this side and this side, and then non-denominational churches, and you're like, ha, huh, are we unified? How much are we unified? Are we like just barely hanging on being unified, or are we fully unified? And it gets a little bit more complicated than just, I like coffee. Music is good for my ears. You know what I mean? It's more complicated. And, and here's the one issue that I think is really challenging for all of us, and I'm going to say it. It's, it's a three-letter word. Feels like a four-letter word, but it's a three-letter word. Starts with the letter S, and the word is sin. And it gets really complicated when we start talking about sin because I think we tend to break into two camps, and it really is polarizing. I think when you talk about sin, you have one side of the church that's like, yes, we need to come down hard on sin. We have to call it out. Sin is atrocious. It is horrible, and it separates us from God. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we do. We do need to do that. And then you have the other side of the camp goes, well, Jesus loves us, and he died for us, and he loves us unconditionally, and he's forgiven us, so maybe we should be a little bit more loving when we talk about sin. Are we unified in Jesus? How do we, what do we do? And then, by the way, when we talk about sin, it just gets really uncomfortable. Did you notice the silence in the room just like, whoo? And you're like, 4th of July, sparklers, let freedom ring. <laughs> so in an effort to unify all of us, we're going to talk about sin this morning. I'm so glad you're here. It's going to be really, um, oh, well, who knows? You'll decide if it's really helpful or not. I think it's going to be really helpful. Um, here's what I want to talk about when it comes to unity and sin, because it has everything to do with our book study of 1 Corinthians. Christians have a terrible time. We really struggle handling sin. Like when it comes to other people sinning in the world, we have a difficult time handling sin. And I'm going to say it this way, um, both inside the church and outside the church, like we really don't know how to handle it well. Because I'm willing to bet, because it's happened to me and I've done it, I'm willing to bet that you have erred on both sides when it came to talking with other Christians about their sin. And I'm willing to bet you've erred on both sides when it comes to viewing your own sin, just like I have. Because my favorite sins that I go back to over and over and over again, um, they're not that big of a deal. 
But that sin that I'm really um, passionate about and I really don't like because it's caused me a lot of pain, um, I'm going to let you know that it is a big deal and the most important deal of Jesus. So it's really challenging. Is there a middle ground there? Is there a right way to do this? How do we make it so that we can have conversations in church on 4th of July weekend where it's not really quiet and we're all going, here we go, buckle up, we're going for a ride. I have this um, fun thing that I like to do and I like to mess with people. So, sorry, you're going to be messed with this morning. But it's a little game I play, and it's how to get people to to quote Scripture without even knowing it. And it works in the church, but it works even better outside of the church with non-Christians, people who don't know Jesus. And so what I like to do, I like to see how quickly can I get someone to quote Scripture back at me. So what I do, and you can try this at home on, on, on your loved ones or neighbors, or hopefully you love your neighbors, maybe not, I don't know. But try this anyways. You're, here's what you're going to do. To get them to quote Scripture, you're simply going to look at their life and their morality, and you're going to judge them. You're going to say, the way you live and how you are acting and treating people, how you're doing this, that's sin. And then just smile. <laughs> they may not go to church. They may not read the Bible. They may go to church and read the Bible and may know more about it than you do. But they will quote this verse. They might not know where it comes from, but they will quote this verse right here. Judge not. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. You ever had these conversations or you've read about these conversations where like you're, you're talking with people and you're like, that's a sin. And they're like, well, you, you know, you can't judge. And you're like, uh, oh, okay. And say, well, you're, you're good God and you're good book. Like your God said it in, in his book. You can't judge. Who are you to judge me? Right? This is, this is how you get people to quote scripture. Just look at their life and their actions and how they, how they treat and interact with people in the world and just be like, I'm going to judge your morality and your lifestyle. And I'm going to say that that is sinful. And they're like, judge not and it's a quick game and it usually destroys friendships (laughs) hear me out for a second we have to talk about this before we can jump to first corinthians and i promise the two of them definitely relate so we're going on a journey so stay with me when people are saying judge not i think what we need to interpret when they say this i think what, what people are actually saying is you can't condemn me Because I think what people are doing is they're looking at us, if you've been in one of these conversations, they're looking at you, they're looking at me, they're looking at us going, "Um, you've got skeletons in your closet. And by the way, half of the skeletons, we were with each other when we were doing the sin. So if I'm going down, you're going down with me. In other words, you're a hypocrite. Who are you to call out my sin? Now, with your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. I want to read through this passage. I think it's very important that we understand this. Because this thought process has really sped up in society, I would say over the last probably 15, maybe even 20 years. But this, uh, it's the idea of, of postmodernism. Maybe you've heard this. But it's the thought that what's true for you is probably not true for me. I have my own truth. In other words, truth is relative. And when we get to that point, it's very difficult to have a conversation because there is no common ground. But when truth becomes relative, and it's true for you, but it's not for me, and it's good for me, but it might not be your truth, it gets really messy, but it leads also to phrases like, you can't judge me. This is my own truth. I'm living my truth. I'm speaking my truth. And it becomes very, very challenging. So uh, um, back in the day, there used to be this word tolerance, and tolerance meant something, and then now it has kind of progressed and morphed into a different meaning. But here's the old meaning. Tolerance, it's this. It's granting others the freedom to be wrong. Don't you love that? By the way, we do this with children all the time. 
I did it with my kids last night. I'm driving them home and they are fighting and screaming, going, I'm not tired, I'm not tired, I'm not tired. I'm like, dude, oh, I love you. You're so sweet. You're exhausted. You're tired. I can see it all over your face and your body. You're like, I'm not tired. And what do you do? You finally get them in the car seat and you drive for two minutes and what do they do? They just pass out. They're exhausted. What did I do? I just tolerated my kid. He was totally wrong, but I gave him the freedom to be wrong. I tolerated him. Here's kind of the new definition. And this is my words, but it's not Webster, but this is me. Um, Basically, we are affirming and celebrating things people do or believe as right and good, no matter the consequence. This, I think, is what tolerance has progressed and morphed into. And I'm not upset about it. I'm just saying, I think, I think the rules have changed. I think the definitions have changed. I think this is where our society is. And if you can't tell me if something I'm doing is right or wrong, how in the world do we have a conversation? We don't. You can't. So we fire back with phrases like, what's true for you isn't true for me. It's all relative. Your truth isn't my truth. We have people saying, I'm going to live or speak my own truth. You ever heard that one? I'm going to live and speak my own truth. And this is my favorite one. Um, I'm not upset about it because I know what we mean, or I assume I know what we mean, and and I'm okay with it. I really am. But um, here's my thought on it. Uh, The best version of myself, I'm living my best life now. I'm being the best version of myself. And I get it. Again, I'm not mad, but I do want to ask the question, like, according to who and what? Because you're in church before God and one another. You ever been wrong about yourself? Yeah. I just, again, not mad. I'm just, I'm curious. I want to have the conversation of what, what does this actually mean? And what if, what if the best version of yourself actually ends up hurting someone else? Is that just their problem? They have to get over it and move on? Or do we have somewhat of a responsibility for our neighbors and the relationship thereof? We have to have some common ground. We have to have language. And we have to understand this whole idea of Judging. So with that as the backdrop, go to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to hit the ground running. So here we go. Matthew 7, verse 1 says this, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye. And then say these words together, the first two right here, ready, one, two, three. You hypocrite. That's pretty weak. That's a good church word, right? Okay, ready, one, two, three. You hypocrite. Quick sidebar, hypocrisy is not a Christian issue, it is a human issue. Human beings are totally um, not consistent in their values and their beliefs, amen? Human beings say one thing and do another. This is a human problem, not just a Christian problem. He says this, verse five, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So people will use this all the time. You can't judge me. I read it in your good book, and your good God has said this, so you cannot judge me. Jump down to verse 15. Jesus gives two other teachings in between the judging and what we're about to read. You can read those on your own. I just don't have enough time. So we're going fast. Verse 15 Listen to this. It says, watch out for false prophets. Same Jesus. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Here we go. Verse 16. By their their fruit. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No, they do not. So what Jesus is saying is he's going to say, church, body of Christ, people in the kingdom of God, watch out. 
There are wolves in sheep's clothing, and you will know who they are because you're going to judge the fruit. You're going to judge what they produce in their life. How do you recognize something? How do you recognize that this is an apple and this is an orange? What do you do? You judge the two because they are different. How do you recognize if the apple is is delicious and worth eating or it is rotten and gross? You judge it. And if you're daring or in youth group, you take a bite of it. And you're chewing, and what is your brain doing? You are making judgments. This apple does not taste like an apple. So our Lord and Savior is saying, judge not. Also, be on your guard because you need to judge. What's a Christian to do? I don't think it's just this either or or this bipolar thing over here. I, I, I think there's something deeper going on. I think there's something more profound going on. So now, with this as a context, jump over 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because again, we have a hard time handling people when they sin, both inside and outside the church. And Paul, in this passage that we read in chapter 5, has everything to do with judging. And we're going to take some notes, and we're going to get out of here before midnight. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Are you there? Say yes. How many of you need more time? All right, we're going. 1 Corinthians 5, it says this. This is Paul writing, remember, four chapters on be unified in Jesus. Be unified in Jesus. We're all unified in the fact that we are sinners and we need a savior. His name is Jesus Christ. That's what we're unified. Be unified, be unified, be unified. Bring it all together, be unified. Chapter 5, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. A kind that even pagans do not tolerate. Sexual morality in this context is um, you're, you're having sex with someone you're not married to. Okay, And it says that this is a kind that even pagans, people who do not know God, that they don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. So you got two things going on in, in this church. You got a son sleeping with his stepmom and you have a church that is proud of it. This is a big deal. This is a big deal of what's going on. So those are two massive problems. Scholars think that the church is proud of it for one of two reasons. That um, there's freedom in Christ and all sins are forgiven and Christ loves us unconditionally. So therefore, just walk in, in your freedom. The grace is there. And so look how much we are loving and leaning into the grace and the total forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That's one thought. The other thought is that this man is a prominent businessman in the community or a celebrity of sorts within the community. And they're really proud and excited that he attends their church. So what they're doing is just going, I'm just going to look this way. We're going to turn a blind eye to it. And we're just stoked that they're here because the the check that they write when they tithe. Aren't you glad that both those reasons still don't exist in the church today? Isn't that great that we've just, we've gotten so much better. Okay, keep going, keep going. Shouldn't you, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning, which would be the opposite of being proud and have put out of your fellowship, the man who has been doing this. And so on one hand, I'm like, Paul, absolutely. Like we have to call sin, sin. And there's no way that we can just go and praise this and say, yes, this is God honoring. Like kick him out. It's going to ruin the reputation of the church. Get rid of him. And then on the other hand, I go, Jesus loves this man and his stepmom. Jesus has totally forgiven this man and the stepmom. This is a complicated issue, isn't it? It's a very complicated issue. Talking about sin is complicated and it is nuanced. 
So let's keep going and see if we can figure out some other things. Verse 3, for my part, even though I'm not physically present, I, Paul, this is Paul writing, am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you this way in spirit, I have already passed, uh uh-oh, what's that word? I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. Paul didn't read Matthew 7, did he? He's like, I've already passed judgment, not just judgment, from my opinion, in the name of Jesus. Verse 4, so when you are assembled and I'm with you in the spirit and the power of our Lord at Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that, circle those two words, so that, circle, highlight, underline, arrows, stars, smiley face, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Sounds like a pretty harsh judgment to me. Hand them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Number one in your notes, Christians are to judge one another, not condemn one another. So if we're to judge and not condemn, um, what's this business of handing over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? That sounds pretty, um, it's a tough judgment. So here's what a lot of scholars are thinking, and, and I tend to think as well. There's a little bit of debate on this, but... What I think is happening here is simply this. Um, Satan is called the ruler of the world. In other passages of scripture, 1 John 5, 19 says this, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The evil one is Satan. Paul wrote another book called Colossians and in it he talks about the two different kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness, which is where Satan rules and it's sin, and you have the kingdom of light. This is the kingdom of God. This is where all the good things happen, the blessings, the unconditional love. You have these two things. What I think is happening here is Paul is writing to this church and he's saying, listen, if this man wants to go and live like hell, allow him to do so. Hand him over to Satan. He will run this race and get to the end of it and get to the end of the road. He will inevitably hit rock bottom because that's what happens when you walk with Satan and you walk in darkness. Your flesh will get destroyed so that, so that, so that he may repent, so that he may be saved, so that he may be Saved. Remember I had you circle those words, so that, so that. It sounds like a very harsh punishment, but that's not the goal. That's not what he has in mind. Number two in your notes, the purpose is restoration, not punishment. Sometimes life is difficult and it feels like a punishment. It is not. It is just enjoying the consequences of our sin. And that is difficult. There's a difference between um, punishment and restoration. The purpose is always restoring someone. And in the first century, like it is today, when you remove someone from their support group, oh man, life gets even more difficult, doesn't it? It gets very, very challenging, especially in the first century, to the point where they will probably want to come back, won't they? And when they come back, we can have some real, honest conversations We have to do this. The goal is never, we're not trying to go and punish this person. We're trying to kick him out. Listen, if you're going to live like hell, here, enjoy your life with Satan. So that, so that you'll be saved when Jesus comes back. So that you can repent. So that you can change your way of thinking. So that you can change your life. Keep reading. Verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? He's using leaven to represent sin. So work with me. Verse seven, he says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. 
Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. What if... To the Jewish people in his audience that are attending this church or people familiar with the Old Testament and the Jewish festivals, this makes perfect sense. For us today, we have to do a little bit of heavy lifting. I'm just gonna give you essentially what Paul is saying. Number three in your notes, sin is not isolating. It impacts everyone and everything. Sin is not isolating. It impacts everything and everyone. It's not just this isolated incident, just you and no one else. It impacts the whole thing. If you put um, salt in cake instead of sugar in just one section and you, it mixes around, it's, the whole thing is bad, is it not? I, I've got young kids. I can remember this. They start playing with Play-Doh. And I'm the type of guy that likes the blue tape Play-Doh in the blue container, the green Play-Doh in the green container, the yellow Play-Doh in the yellow, yellow container. Okay, this is just an insight into my life. This is how I like it. Now, Inevitably, and parents, you know this, there will come a day where your kid, your loved one, will get two color Play-Dohs and go like this and mash it together into a nice little ball or a hot dog, because that's really all you can do with it. You're going to look at it and you're going to see that those two things have, have come together. You can still see the blue, you can still see the green, but that blue will never be, will never be the original blue, will it? And that green will never be the original green, will it? because it has been impacted by the other. In fact, take it a step further. You ever tried to separate the two colors once they've been mushed together? You can't do that. Some of you, you came in this morning and you got coffee because it's a blessing from God. So you filled it up and you got your creamer and then you poured the creamer in. And if you do it in the glass, isn't it cool? Because it makes that like, like that swirl thing. That's the technical sound it makes. I don't know. And it goes in there. But like you see it and it starts mixing and then you get your little stir stick and you stir it up and it's mixed together. You can't separate the two, can you? It has impacted the whole cup of coffee. This is the idea with sin is that your sin impacts me and my sin impacts you. The things that I do, the sin that I have in my life impacts my family. And if you're in any close quarters or relationship with my family, you will be impacted by my sin because it's impacted my family and my family will impact you. And it comes... Same thing. If you do things that impact my family, guess what? It impacts me. This is how sin works. So if we sin in one section of the church and we just look away and go, hey, it's not that big of a deal. When in Rome, actually it is. It's going to impact the whole thing because sin is not isolating. You have to deal with it. If you have cancer in the body, you have to deal with it. You have to get rid of it because it will impact the whole body. Are you with me? Yes. This is a big deal. Sin is not isolating. It, in, it impacts everything. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Um, it, it's not this letter. Paul actually wrote four letters to the Corinthians. We have two of the four that are in our Bible. Um, so in another letter that's not in the scriptures, he said this. Now, verse 10. He says, don't associate with sexually immoral people. Verse 10. Not at all, meaning the people of this world, who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Why? Because they're everywhere. <laughs> Verse 11. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister in Jesus Christ, unified in the family of God, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Pretty harsh judgment, isn't it? You're like, Paul, you could use a little bit of Jesus, Matthew 7. Come on, my man. 
There should be a little bit of grace in there. And he's coming down hard because in the first century, if you were to sit down at a table and share a meal with somebody, it was signaling to the whole society, the whole community and culture that you are in agreement with one another. Meaning if I was sitting down and splitting a meal with this man and we would be talking, people would look at it and go, Pastor Steve is affirming and agreeing with the fact that this man is having sex with his mother-in-law and it should be celebrated and it should be a big, big deal. That's what they're picking up. So when Paul says, do not even eat, he's like, I don't want you sending mixed messages. Not at all. You're going to confuse everybody. By the way, you're already confused because you're super proud of this. But here's the deal. If we completely isolate and kick this human being out with the goal of restoration, someone, a Christian, needs to actually sit down and have a phone call, a cup of coffee with this person, and say, hey, we need to talk about your life because you are going down the wrong path. So it's not complete isolation, never to be seen of or heard of or spoken of ever again. It's this idea that when we do the church potluck, you're not invited because you are living in the ways of Satan in his world and we are in the kingdom of God. Those two things are not compatible. You can't just mix those two Plato's together. That doesn't work. He says, you have to be put out of the fellowship. You have to be over here until you repent. Then, ah, then, then, then we can have a conversation. We're almost done. Verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? And everyone will go, yeah. Verse 13. God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Number four in your notes. Never judge non-Christians by Christian standards. Never judge non-Christians by Christian standards. Why? Their playbook is not our playbook. We are playing a totally different game. They're not in the family. They don't want to be in the family. Now, am I saying we don't talk about sin? No, I didn't say that at all. I'm just reading what Paul wrote. He said, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? God will judge those outside. So what's the appropriate response? What's a Christian to do? My guess, it's an educated guess, but my guess is that we love them because that's what Jesus did. And personally, I was once a them. And Jesus loved me and, and Christians loved me. So, so we should love them. Well, what do we do with the sin in their life? Earn the right to maybe speak about it? Amen. But it, it will be God that judges them. And the Christians, we're not supposed to judge non-Christians by Christian standards. We're supposed to judge one another by Christian standards. And when I say judge, don't think condemn because we're not, we're no longer, we're not condemned in Christ Jesus. That's what I'm trying to say. Fully loved, fully forgiven. This is challenging. This is difficult to do because some of us have bad habits that we've been doing for years. And our response is to go and love the world like Jesus did. And Jesus will judge the world. In the meantime, you and I look at each other and we say, okay, apples and oranges. Let me give you number five, and this may help. Number five, you can have a personal relationship with Jesus, but not a private one. You can have a personal relationship, and it is very personal. 
It is not private. When you and I decide to be in the family of God, when we decide to be Christians, we have given up that right to privacy. So in essence, we are allowing one another to speak into each other's lives. Proverbs says, iron sharpens iron. So another man, woman sharpens one another. We want to be more and more like Christ. So when you see an area of my life that is glowingly, obviously, and it has nothing to do with Jesus, I need you to make a judgment call and speak into it. Because I, I'm assuming like you, have a couple blind spots. You ever been unaware of something in your life and someone points it out and you're like, whoa, I'm embarrassed. I didn't even know. Thank you for doing that. That's how it plays out correctly. How it plays out incorrectly, because we're human and we all do this. Someone will make something, they'll make a judgment about our lives, and what do we do? We build up this wall, we become super defensive, don't we? We go Matthew 7 on them. Well, who are you? You plank and sawdust. You got sin too. And we write them off. Okay, true confession. Um, I've, been, I've been here for about three years. I've received more than one um, constructive email. <laughs> I want to be the type of person that I will read the email and not immediately get defensive when I see the subject line. Yeah. I want to be the type of person that if I'm preaching and I'm, and I'm preaching errors, even heresy, I want to read it and go, thank you. That is not my intent. I want to be that person, but I'm telling you, I've received emails and I look at the subject line and I, I just I start building that wall of defense and going like, mm, well, this person, they have this and they're being self-righteous and blah, 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 blah. And I start quoting stuff totally out of context, but I have it and I just fling it in the email. It doesn't, I, I don't want to be that guy. I want to be coachable. I want to be teachable. I want to be more like Jesus, which means I need other people to help. Amen. That being said, it is all in the delivery, isn't it? There's a right way to send that email of like, hey, I had a question. Um, you said this and I was confused. Could you shine some light? That's a great way, not just to send an email, but to have conversations with people. I know you're following Jesus, but I see you doing this. Can you help? I'm probably missing something, but I just wanted to bring it up because I think your intent is to really follow Jesus. That's different than you hypocrite. You're a sinner and you're addicted to this and you need to pray and repent. And it's a good thing Jesus loves you because we don't. Do you know what I mean? Those are, listen, and look, we're all loving people. None of us have said, I hope to God none of us have said that. Some of us, listen, some of us have heard that. Do you know what I mean? Someone's lips have been moving, but we have heard that. There's a way to go about this. So this idea of judging Christians are to judge one another with the idea of making us more and more like Christ. We have to trust each other. We have to be vulnerable. We have to realize our security, our identity is not in our reputation in the community, but in Jesus Christ. So we can receive feedback. It is good for us. The world, they need love. And that's what Jesus did. And here we are 2,000 years later. I think it works. So I want to keep moving that way. This is a complicated thing. I wish this wasn't the topic of 4th of July, but here we are. We have to pray. We have to ask for supernatural help, and we need one another as well. This is a both and thing. So here's what I want to do. I want everyone, we're going to stand up and be unified as we stand together. We're going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. Because listen, some of us, we've been putting off conversations because we didn't want to be judgy. We need to have those conversations, and they need to be done correctly. And that's going to require a lot of strength and humility. So I want to pray that over us. So Lord, we come before you and this is difficult to do. 
It's difficult to talk about. I think it's even more difficult to put into action. So Father, I pray over this church that we would have a spirit of gentleness. Father, help us to be curious, to provide hope for people. Help us to point one another towards you. I pray that in our conversations, Lord, when we accidentally say the wrong things, that as a community, we would not be so defensive or we would not go on the attack and keep pointing the finger at one another, but we would look at one another with sincere hearts and say, thank you for sharing that. I want to be more and more like Jesus. That was difficult for me to hear, but I'm gonna go and pray about it. God, I pray that when we do this, the outside world would take note and they would see that in fact, we can have difficult conversations and have it be rooted in love. And because of those conversations and your spirit being so present, we become more and more loving. And I pray for a world that does not know you, that from my perspective becomes more and more distrusting of one another. I pray, Lord, that we would unify around the fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And that Savior's name is Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that it starts here with us today. Guide us. Help us to say the right things and help us to keep our mouth shut and not say the wrong things. We need your discernment on this. We pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. And the church said, amen. 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 Let's go out singing one last song.